Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. It's the 10th season of Robot Chicken, so to celebrate, we're talking to the people who make it. My guest right now is Ellery Smith, who is a stand-up comedian and one of the youngest writers on the show. Here's Ellery. Emerson, huh? Yeah. Wow. Should people go to Emerson to be in TV writing? Uh, well. Is that why you went there? That is why I went there. And it was great because when I left college, I had a spec and a sample, which I think a lot of people move out here not knowing that you need. What was your spec? Uh, <laughs> I had a Broad City spec and then I had a Louis spec that I obviously had to stop sending out. <laughs> wow. Did you stop sending it? Yeah. What was your sample? Uh, it's not very good. It's a pilot about um, a like Real Housewives star who is asked to leave the show, so she tries to kill herself for like attention, oh. and then her assistant has to be the one to like pick up the pieces. That sounds funny. Yeah, in a really dark way, maybe. It opened some doors. Uh yeah. Well, the I sent my spec to Matt like when we first met, and that's sort of how I, uh, you know, got to meet everybody here. How long were you out here before you got a job? Uh, well, I'm a freelancer, right? So jobs come and go. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was like a receptionist. I was an assistant. I worked at a dog hotel for like a year. Uh, a bunch of like small, odd jobs. And then even still now, I'll take like copywriting jobs, stuff like that. You had a full year at the dog hotel. Yes. <laughs> that was after I had done my first season here. What happens in the dog hotel? Uh, well, actually, we would have like dog Instagram influencers there. So like dog celebrities. And every so often you would talk to like one of their agents. It was really, uh, it was really, really odd and sort of like quintessential Los Angeles. What were some of the influencer dogs? Do you remember? I don't know that we had like a famous pug. I don't remember what his uh-huh. name was though. And they have agents. <laughs> Indeed they do. Did you have an agent before uh, you met the dog's agents? <laughs> no, no. I, uh, I have a manager. Um, but I'm not sure that dogs need managers, you know. You've been a writer for Robot Chicken for? Since 2017. Okay, a couple of years. So three years, maybe. What do people always ask you? Um, <laughs> I guess I get that show is still on the air a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also they sort of ask me, like, what the pitching process is like. Because yeah. it's a sketch show, so the room is a little bit different. What's the pitching process like? Well, you write all day long, and then at the end of the day... Uh, there's like this chopping block where people read, you know, the packet, all the sketches, and then we do we do a very democratic vote to decide on what's funny and what's not. So you're literally sitting around a big table writing quietly by yourself. Yes, it's a really it's it's different than other rooms for sure. But I mean, we like talk and joke around, but it's uh, it's not really collaborative until the end. So it's ten ten here in Burbank, and have you been in the room already this morning? Yes, I got here at nine. So you sat down at nine and you started writing jokes. <laughs> that sounds really hard. Uh, well, I read Washington Post for like a half hour, uh-huh. and then I wrote down some facts that aren't jokes; they're just facts. And then hopefully later I will be able to extrapolate that. Wow! And do you feel pressure to hit that three forty-five oh, deadline? Yeah, absolutely. 
stressful. It's ex- incredibly stressful, especially when, uh, you know, the ideas just aren't coming. Yeah. But that's sort of like the, the business of being a writer is like making, you know, the butter churn when there isn't any butter. Have you had any luck this morning? Not yet. <laughs> but it's not luck, you're saying? No, it's it's not. It's like a it's like a willful effort to just commit something to the page. Better something than nothing. A script that exists is better than a script that doesn't exist. You're yawning because you're tired because you're up all night. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. That's so rude of me. What were you doing? Uh, I'm a stand-up here in Los Angeles. So last night I did a podcast at seven, and then I went to go do a show. Oh, everyone's got a podcast. Everybody has a podcast. Yeah. Do you have one? Uh, I do. It's not. It's a small series I did about Entourage, where I, I talk with my friends about Entourage, the show. What do you tell people your job is now? Oh, I say I'm a stand-up and a writer. A stand-up and a writer. Yeah. Why do you still do stand-up? Um, the immediacy of the laughs is incredibly addictive because it's like usually when you, you write a script, you have to you know send it out for notes and then come back and take those notes and then do another draft. But with stand-up, you can just find out immediately if something is good or not and then decide if you want to keep working on it. And also it's sort of a way that I can feel productive without actually having to do any work. How did you get hooked up with Matt? I was in Texas at the Austin television festival and i ended up meeting matt and keith and uh they followed me on twitter and i was like 20 maybe and then when i moved out to los angeles i reached out to matt and him and keith had both sort of been reading my twitter um because it's like you know it's like a comedy account oh yeah let's look it up and let's see what your last tweet was <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> do you feel like you're being judged uh, I think that you're not going to want to read it on mic. No? <laughs> no. Why not? Let's see what it is. At Ellery Smith. Raw dogging is when I sleep on my mattress. No sheets. Send tweet. <laughs> That's funny. Should Thank I like you so it? much. Sure. Go for it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's sort of like a, a Hellion account. It's, it's like a character almost. I don't know. Do you test stuff out there before you do it live? Yeah, well, the the version of me I play online is not really the version of me I do on stage. Wow. I'm trying to make them closer together. But you have a lot of different personalities. <laughs> yeah, well, the the account I sort of throw my voice a little bit. I'll I'm like a a braver, you know, uh, sort of like more snarky version of myself. Whereas like on stage, I I try to let in uh, more like nuance and playfulness. So yeah. Met Matt and Keith Crawford at Austin. They started following you on Twitter. And do you, th- do you think that Twitter was helpful in getting you the job? Oh, absolutely. I think uh, Twitter has been helpful in getting me most jobs that I've gotten, including stand-up. Why do you think that is? People just feel like they know you, they think you're really funny, and that's that? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's um, it's sort of a golden handcuff situation where, you know, I've been trained to write really succinct jokes and that doesn't necessarily translate to story writing uh but as far as like punch up and dialogue it's been uh sort of like a priceless skill so robot chicken in particular short form flash comedy yeah about pop culture yeah Mm -hmm. absolutely and i'm i'm sort of heavily plugged into pop culture and and sort of have always been um so it's it's really like a perfect combination for me specifically. And probably very valuable. You're younger than a lot of people who, who work here, who've been here. This is the 10th season of Robot Chicken. So it's probably helpful for them to have your perspective. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it'll be tough because I'll pitch on properties that nobody has seen. 
Like what? Uh, like last year or two years ago, I, I pitched a sketch about scary stories to tell in the dark, and nobody had read the book, and now there's a movie <laughs> coming out. <laughs> so you were ahead of the game. Yeah, a little bit, but it doesn't mean it was a good sketch. But the topic was there. Yes, exactly. Hmm. What do people misunderstand or people think that they know about writing comedy or doing stand-up that they're wrong? I think, and I think this is true about copywriting also, I think a lot of people think that they can do it. It seems sort of like a non-skill, right? Like people, I think, don't understand the amount of honing that goes into it. And also, I mean, some people are talented immediately, but I think for me it's taken a lot of like careful practice to become better. Did you think you would do this with your life? Yeah, definitely. I started doing stand-up when I was 17, so uh, it's kind of always been the thing I wanted. Do you remember your first joke? <laughs> sort of. What was it? I, I don't re- I remember doing an abortion joke like really early on, and I'm, I'm from sort of like a conservative town. Uh, and I remember my comedy friends really liked it, but the audience didn't, and that was like the first time I sort of understood like doing comedy for comedians instead of playing to an audience. Your friends liked it. Yeah. But the audience didn't. Yeah. But I think comedians see so much comedy that their taste sort of becomes twisted. What uh, what perks do you have as a comedy writer on this show? Perks? Yeah. Um. Well, I get to see the cuts before they go out and before they air, which is fun. You get first look at the I get episodes. first look. Also, um, watching, like, voice recording sessions has been really interesting to me. And, like, watching Tom Shepard direct uh, is sort of, like, very special information that people, you know, it's, like, behind the scenes, behind the curtain stuff that people don't typically have access to. There's an intimacy to it. Yeah, there's an intimacy. And there's also sort of, like, a sausage making where it's, like, I'm so fascinated by television and that has, like, not gone away. So I... I'm so interested in seeing everything get made and, like, watching people perform in their roles. Do you direct ever? Uh, A little bit. I do video game work, and so I'll voice direct on those lines, but I haven't for anything outside of that. We've had a couple people on the podcast complain about video game work. Like they don't like doing it? Yeah. It's rough. It is. It's work-intensive, definitely. It's labor-intensive. Yeah. Uh, Dana Snyder was, in particular bitching about the amount of uh, detail that goes into the script. Oh, it's so it's so much. And I, oof, especially when it's, yeah, because every scene there are like three possibilities of what could happen. So you have to write like three different rounds of dialogue. So that's really difficult. But also, and also it can, it can get like a little rote. Like I worked on a children's game this year. But I think putting parameters on your comedy, I feel like forces it to be better. Like you, you like rise to that expectation without like while staying inside these set boundaries if that makes sense so the restrictions that are forced upon you by the genre make it funnier yeah or make i guess it it makes it challenging for me in a way that i appreciate right like i still want to do stuff that makes me laugh while meeting the expectations and the need of the client and something about that space uh is good for my creativity so you're writing for yourself on this show yeah, well, I I also write for the room, right? Like, I really care about, probably to a fault, I care about sort of the opinions of people in the room because I really respect them. So I, I try to write to make them laugh. Do you remember your first days? Yeah, doing it? <laughs> yeah very intimately. Yeah, what was that like? Uh, I was 
so unbelievably nervous. So nervous. Like... That you were going to say something very stupid. Yeah, yeah. Or just that, like, I would pitch something that wasn't... I just, you know, like, pitch something that wasn't funny or had no point or no ending. Uh, just did, sort of, like, arrested did you do, by... Did you do that? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but then I then I learned that everybody does that. You know what I mean? Um, and also, it's such a supportive room that it, it really didn't make any sense to be so afraid and, like, nervous. I just had to, like, calm down and accept that, you know, I did deserve to be there and my voice did matter and stuff like that. Are you on the other side now where you see new people come in and you pity them? <laughs> uh, no, not really. I, I don't know. I think the last person, new person that I worked with who I hadn't done the show before was Andrew T, who is incredibly, incredibly funny and uh, so laid back. And so he was great in the room. You were so nervous on the first day pitching stuff. And then eventually, I'd imagine you got one past the goalie, right? Yeah, yeah. I had a I had a pretty good first season. I think I got a fair amount of stuff in, uh, including... Well, that Emmy episode, it's like me, Michael Poussin, and Kyle Kennedy, and then, you know, Tom Root and Doug and Mike. But uh, that was like my first cycle, my first season. Do you remember uh, what your sketches were? Yeah, I had, um, I only, I know that there are more in the episode, but I only remember two. So many sketches go through in a season that it's hard to keep track. Um, But I had one about Jesus asking for breakfast for his last supper, and then uh, there's like a Helga Buffalo Bill sketch where, like, Helga from Hey Arnold becomes Buffalo Bill and, like, uses his head to... It doesn't matter. <laughs> so a lot of celebrities come through here. And do you write for them intentionally? Or do you find yourself, like, do you target people that you want to write for or write about? No, that comes after. We'll we'll get to the final round of the sketches, like the sketches that are absolutely uh, at least getting animated, and then we'll see if there's anybody we want to cast but I think to write with somebody specific in mind is sort of shoehorning something in or setting yourself up for failure because that person could always turn it down and then the sketch you know wouldn't work yeah then you're done yeah so it's it's better to write something uh that sort of exists on its own and then maybe is elevated with a celebrity does it still feel stressful here yeah a little bit I mean I'm I want to consistently be an asset, you know, so when I have days where I don't get anything through, it's still a little tough. It's harder to be funny when you're stressed out about it? You know, my therapist would say, yes, it's harder. (laughs) But I think I, uh, uh, and this might be a delusion of myself that I have, like, created, but I think I might perform better under stress, like under specific deadlines and parameters. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have other stress? What keeps you awake at night? Oh, lots of stuff. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> lots of stuff. So I, I do a lot of stand-up, and lately I've been worried that, like, the kind of performer I want to be, will like, I'll never be able to attain that, right? Like, the space between the work I make and, like, the work I want to make feels a little large right now, and that could be very daunting. Um, and then I had sort of, like, a hard year personally uh my friend passed away and then my dad passed away. So trying to work through that and make something like not just funny, uh, but also sort of like emotionally relevant, trying to navigate that has been fairly difficult. How do you possibly navigate that? 
Uh, Those two one-two punches. Through transparency, I think. Through emotional transparency. I think everybody has suffered a great loss. Like, I don't think I've met one person who hasn't dealt with it. And that's been honestly very connective for me. Who's funny to you? In what realm? Anything? Mm Mm-hmm. Well... I loved Tim Robinson's I Think You Should Leave Now, and I loved his characters special. I thought that was very good. What's your favorite sketch from that from that batch? Oh, God. Is there one that stands out to you that you tell people you have to see this? Yeah, there's there's this... <laughs> they're, like, so absurdist, it's hard even to describe. Uh, but there's... In his character's special, there's this one sketch where he's at an office, and there's this one guy who's, like, making making sort of like uh trope jokes like jokes that are that would be like made by you know a, a salesman in an office and like so it escalates and he tells tim robinson as a joke that he fucked his mom and then tim robinson calls his dad and he's like i have some bad news about mom but it turns out she's still alive so who knows <laughs> it's just it's it's like so succinct and so perfectly done and he also waits like he lets sort of the uh uncomfortability reach a level where like I think most people want to turn it off and only then does he like provide the relief of a laugh and that is like so enviable to me because it's it's like tangibly embarrassing the discomfort of it yeah yeah and also to be able to I mean something I I would like to be better about in my stand-up is uh being okay waiting for a laugh and like letting that tension build and I think that show is a good example of that is your family comfortable with you doing this? Are they worried about you? <laughs> this is the first year that, that I think my family really understood that things are going okay. Yeah. Um, but not till this year. Not till this. Well, I, I got a little bit more press this year than I have previously. What press did you get? I, I got a write-up in Forbes recently, and I think that's when my family was finally like, okay. Forbes? Yeah. What did they say? Um, they just did a, you know, sort of like a profile about, it was like their under 30 section. So they did a short profile about me and, like, the comedy show I run and me working here. Funnelingus. Funnelingus. Yeah, yeah, you know it. <laughs> I do. Of course. Do my homework. Yeah, that's me. How'd that come about? <laughs> um, well, we're actually about to celebrate our two years. Uh, I have been doing stand-up for not a long time, but, you know, for a good chunk of it. A good chunk of my adult life. And, you know, all my friends were running shows. And there would always be, like, two women on an eight-person lineup. Uh, and I think in Los Angeles, like, we have so, like, it's really, it's an embarrassment of riches how many smart, funny women we have. Um, and so it just, it just made sense to put a show together that, you know, my friends could consistently come and do time on. Um, and people, the women who write here, almost all of them do stand up, so, like, they can come on the show. And it's, like, a nice, and it's, it's like a backyard show, so it's sort of a party. It's fun. It's a very laid back, very feminine I, there's not a lot of like feminine energy in comedy, and so this feels sort of like an injection of that. Who are some of the uh, female comedians t- uh, these days that you admire? Uh, well, Catherine Ryan, I think, is really, really funny. She has two killer specials on Netflix. She's uh, based in the UK, but she's a comedian from Canada. And then, like, locally in our scene, we have Beth Stelling, who is, I mean, she's amazing. She's a powerhouse. And then we have uh, Steph to Live, who's another. Canadian comedian who is she's just like she's like a machine gun like it's just joke 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 it's so fast but um 
not too, she's like she's amazing. It's sometimes I will watch certain people perform and feel like deep, <laughs> like burning jealousy. And she's one of those people. So is it is it hard to be a woman in comedy out here? I mean, Robot Chicken seems like it has a pretty diverse staff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have I've definitely been the only woman in that room, but like I think this is a special room where it's so insanely supportive that it doesn't really feel like quote unquote being a woman in comedy. Like uh, I feel much more like supported and lifted in Los Angeles than I did when I was doing comedy in Boston. Is that like a burden, women in comedy? Yeah, well, people always ask you about it, right? Where they don't typically mm-hmm. ask men what it's like to be a man in What's comedy. What's it like to be a man in comedy? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and also, I think people take you, especially I'm I'm really young comparatively, so I think uh, at least in stand-up, I've been taken a little less seriously. Because of your youth? Yeah, well, because I'm I'm like a young woman, right? Like, so I moved out here, I was 21, and I was doing stand-up, and it was hard, you know, for my peers who were like 35, 40 to really understand that I was planning on hanging around. Well, that had to take some courage, right? Yeah, or just sort of like uh, <laughs> like blind stupidity <laughs> <laughs> or like, you know, bullheadedness. That's interesting that the women in comedy uh, feels like a um, sort of a, a diminishment. Yeah, well, it's also sort of how like people always say female comedian. Yeah, comedian. Comedian, yeah. yeah. Is that still a thing? Uh, comedian is not still a thing, but female comedian is definitely. Is it moved from actor, actress to just actor also? You know, I, I think in some circles, right? Like how you're not really supposed to say waitress. I don't know. Right. I try to stay on the quote unquote right side of those issues, but, uh, everybody's learning. (laughs) Would you advise people to enter your career path? Um, so I went to college with a lot of people who wanted to work in comedy and wanted to write and a fair amount of them sort of gave up on that maybe like two or three years after college and I think I think comedy is one of those things where if you don't absolutely love it you're not going to be able to hack it it's so grueling right like the nights are really really long I never really see my friends or my family the only friends I have really now are in comedy and like are at open mics or at shows and stuff um so it's one of those things where it's like there's no separation. There's no, like, private life and then comedy life. It's just comedy all of the time. So if it's not something that you want to, like, eat, sleep, and breathe, I would pick something easier that pays more. <laughs> so what do you mean specifically? Like, you like tonight, you'll finish work here, and then what will happen? So we end at 6. I will be at an open mic by 7. I'll be done with that by, like, 8.30, and then I'll go eat dinner, and then I will probably go do a show or another open mic at 10 and then I'll come home at like midnight or 12:30 and then I'll sleep for about 5 hours and then I'll come back here. Wow, that sounds exhausting. Yeah, but um I'm young, you know, I drink a lot of caffeine. <laughs> you came in here with a coffee and a tea. Yeah, both caffeinated. Yeah. I've never seen that. Um yeah, I have a I have a problem for sure. I'll also probably drink two or three sodas today. But why coffee and tea at the same time? <laughs> because I don't know. I like I like to switch back and forth. Tea is like lighter. Yeah. Coffee. I drink black coffee, so it has like a really bitter taste, and sometimes mm-hmm. it'll the aftertaste in my mouth isn't all that great. What's it like taking comedy writing classes in college? Oh, it's great. It's great. I mean, the good ones are really good, and the bad ones are a waste of your money. But um, I think I think really what I I 
garnered from going to school at Emerson was I was able to be in Boston where I could do stand-up reasonably four times a week. So while it was great to be in writing classes and sort of like have a suedo room that you would pitch in, and it sort of showed you a little bit um, like, you know, what your work life would be like. I think really what was important for me was the ability to be able to round out uh, my my comedy training with going up on stage. Do they still have that Chinese restaurant? Oh, the Hong Kong with the yeah. comedy studio above it? So yeah. that, oh, <laughs> I actually, that's my home club. Um, so they, the Hong Kong wanted to turn that space into like a dance club. So the studio moved um, to, I think, somewhere in Somerville. They just got a permanent residence. And I haven't been back to see it yet. But Rick Jenkins still runs it famously. Yeah, he's popped up. His name has popped up here and there on this on this podcast. A lot of people came through him. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. He hit on my mom one time. He hit on her? Mm-hmm. Well, what was his move? Oh, I don't remember. I just remember watching <laughs> them, like, hearing what he said, and I was like, Rick, I'm right here. <laughs> <laughs> Some people would, would say that it's hard hard to uh, be funny in a classroom environment. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that that's what you're trying to do, though. I think those years, and honestly, I think, like, maybe until you are, you know, eight or ten years in your career, it it should be about, like, absorbing and learning and sort of, like, following the lead of others, right? So, like, in college, I think it was about, like, learning tools that you could use later, right? Like, formatting, um, sort of rules of thumb of, like, being in a room or, like, being a writer's assistant or... Sort of the mechanic, the tools you, of... Exactly, exactly. execution. Yeah, which is, which is really, really helpful in, in, like, a training that a lot of people sort of have to learn you know, baptism by fire style. So it was nice to have those sort of like building blocks because they were so applicable later. Have uh, have you screwed anything up here? Have you gotten yourself in trouble? <laughs> um, not in any like really professional way. Yeah. When I was still working quote unquote day jobs, my Twitter feed was a big issue and I've gotten let go from jobs because of it. Wow. For sure. That's a great advertisement for your Twitter feed. <laughs> well, it's also, like, really affected my personal relationships where, like, I will go on dates and people will Google me and then they'll see this, like, horrible, <laughs> this, like... <laughs> troubled. Yeah, this deeply troubled, like, id character. And I have to explain that it's me, but it's not me and I'm just kidding. And it's... Yeah, I really have painted myself into a corner with that one. Wow, so you've you've literally been let go from jobs. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, walk us through one of those circumstances. I was a camp counselor for, I don't know, three or four summers at my high school. So I would, like, go back in the summer and live with my parents and, uh, you know, work this job. And one summer, my last summer, <laughs> it, a parent, like, either looked me up or came across one of the tweets and went to the account. And she was, like, so horrified by what was there that she sent it along to my boss and my boss was like you're not talking about the job but like the association just doesn't look good for us wow so you were at camp maybe playing like kickball or something and dodgeball then, yeah dodgeball and i got <laughs> called into the office literally they interrupted the game to call you into the office yeah and i remember my boss turned around the screen and it was it was some like horrible tweet about like duck cum or something just something, like some disgusting you know premise and i had obviously no defense when did you realize during the conversation that it was going to turn to your Twitter feed? I think as soon as she went online, as soon as she started typing on her computer, I was like, oh, I, I think I have a, 
I think I have a feeling that I know what this is about. Oh, no. Yeah. In my memory, it plays back in slow motion where I feel like, you know, my cheeks start to get really hot. And I'm thinking about like, okay, well, what can I say to make this look less bad? And that probably wasn't the only tweet in the feed that was objectionable. Yeah, they're all objectionable. I mean, I have family members that like just want to pretend that it doesn't exist. (laughs) Have you had those conversations with your family? Yeah, yeah, definitely. What do they say? Uh, Well, I've got into it with family members about like sort of including them in tweets. Now now I just don't talk about my family, even if they do something really funny. Um, But also like because all of my cousins and stuff are on social media so they they will find one of my tweets on instagram and then it'll be a discussion about like i don't know how like just silent judgment i guess <laughs> like they'll be like oh yeah I, I saw this like are you sure you want it online did you mean to post that yeah yeah yeah. that sort of feeling like is this an accident or you hacked oh yeah i was hacked <laughs> yeah <laughs> and they sounded exactly like me yeah. I guess after two or three of those, they start to realize that you haven't been hacked. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And also, well, at, at first when the account was smaller, I think it was more concerning. Yeah. Because, like, there wasn't an audience for it. Now that the account is is doing comfortably, I think that they sort of understand that, like, they might not like it, but somebody does. Yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you have a big draft folder? Yeah. I was – yeah. I have, like, maybe 200-plus drafts. Wow. Yeah. And what pushes you over the edge, whether you, or not to post it? Oh, well, I like to do I like to do punch ups, right? Typically, I, I tweet from the hip, uh, but sometimes things need to marinate a little while. I'm I'm really into like word economy, so I I try not to waste my space. Brevity being the soul of wit. Yeah, well, brevity and specificity. Yeah. Do you have a specific tweet that has gotten the most attention? The dumbest ones always get the most yeah, attention. Yeah, but there's not one that has been... I mean, I have I have a few that have, like, popped off, right? Like, over 100,000 favorites or whatever. Wow. But those are always the ones that are, like, the least smart. They're, they're the most oh. digestible, which is, like, what makes them not so funny to me. Like, I'm always embarrassed that, like, that's the one that, like, got big or whatever. You seem like you enjoy the embarrassment of it. Oh, I, th- I think I have a shame and embarrassment problem and that I'm also a little addicted to, like, the pain of it. <laughs> the pain of the embarrassment. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's it's like a, a driving force, but it's also incredibly painful. Like, I started – there's, like, a big clown scene in Los Angeles, uh, clowning, like an idiot school. And I started taking those classes, and it's, like – it's so embarrassing, but it's, like, I don't know. It's like a mouse touching a buzzer. Do you know what I mean? You can't stop doing it? I can't stop doing it. Yeah. What does that mean, a clown school? Uh, you, did you watch characters on Netflix? No. Okay. Um. So one of the men who has a special in the character special's name is Dr. Brown. He owns this theater here called Lyric Hyperion Theater and Cafe. And he uh, has clowning classes. And it's not like birthday clowning so much as it is, it is uh, performance art plus like mime plus improv and it's something I've never seen before until I moved here and I'm sort of seeing it everywhere like the influences of it and it's it's one of those things that made me rethink everything I knew about comedy wow yeah where I was like this is like new it was like Kaufman-esque right it was like it was like watching Tony Clifton for the first time or whatever performance art so not not clowning white makeup horns and no not like that Mm -hmm. although sometimes there's makeup and costumes it 
made you rethink comedy? Yeah, it, it really challenged the idea of what I knew uh, to be comedy and also what I thought was sort of on, on the forefront of it. It made me really sort of think that old that stand-up was a little bit straight-laced. Do you incorporate it, what you learned into your comedy? Um, I'm trying. I'm trying to. That's that's my focus for this year. Is uh, I want to be a little bit more performative. I'm a, I'm very sort of straight laced on stage and meaning you just stand there with the mic. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm a little bit. I'm how I describe it to people is that like right now I'm sort of like a Jim Gaffigan, and what I really want to be is like a Sam Kinison. You know what I mean? Like wow. I want to like. That's the opposite. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where it's like I feel this like incredible, you know, rage and energy and also like playfulness inside me that I just have not been able to access on stage yet. And also a thirst for like connection. Do you have a side hustle? Yeah, I copyright and I do uh, I do social media accounts for corporations like Twitters. So like do you admire some social media accounts that exist like the Popeyes one made a big stink lately? The Popeyes one did make a big stink. I also think that Pop-Tarts and Sunny D have really good wow. social media teams. What about Moon Pie? Yeah, Moon Pie is also a really good one. I'm surprised that you knew that. That seems like... I enjoy these, too. Yeah, yeah, they're good. And it's and I'm trying to convince a company I work for to sort of move this direction. But I think that those companies have been really good about leaning into weird Twitter and nihilist humor yeah. that is incredibly popular right now. But a lot of more formal brands are worried that it might alienate customers so they don't go there. Popeyes does a good job. So Pop-Tarts? Pop-Tarts. Sunny D. Really? Yeah. What is their uh, personality? Sort of like, oh, God. Pop-Tarts tweeted once, like, oh, I'm going to end my life. And then Sunny D was like, don't do it. We're here for you. What? Pop-Tarts said that? Yeah, yeah. Stuff like that where it's 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 so wacky that it's it turns back in on itself. But, I mean, there's like a whole Twitter culture inside of that that I think that they deeply understand and know how to utilize. And I have to imagine... It takes some convincing of people at the company to trust you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, especially because my personal account is not necessarily brand friendly. Right. So, you know, I will like test tweet for a company and they'll see that it it's doing well and that I know sort of what I'm doing on the analytics side of it. Like I know like the cadence and what times to post and stuff like that. Uh so, like, what will, like, drive traffic? But I think, like, if when you're convincing a company to sort of push at the bounds of their brand, it's good to have, like, a pitch deck where you bring up those successful Twitter accounts that have, like, been a little bit more experimental. So there's something creepy, maybe, about a company taking on a personality to sell their stuff. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But uh, that's sort of the evolution of advertisement is that that's what it is yeah well they well it's like people right they, they advertised and it was clear that it was an advertisement and then like a little bit later like a few years ago it's like advertisements that seem like you know not advertisements like movies or like short tv like they create a story inside of a commercial and now i think it's it's turning again where com- like companies that are successful will sort of acknowledge that they're selling you something and be in on the joke yeah yeah Transparency. Transparency, what you were exactly. About before. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that that is due to sort of a, a Twitter age where insincerity is just eaten alive. In the Twitter age. Yeah, yeah. Where it's like if we think about like off tone commercials. Do you see some bad uh, corporate Twitters? Yeah, but nothing like offensively bad, just boring, you know. Who? Oh, I, I know that like one of the companies I wanted to work with, like we looked at Powerade for. 
a collaboration, they just they were tweeting nothing. Do you know what I mean? Just like links to products. Yeah. So stuff like that. You probably see some missed opportunities. Yeah, for sure, but uh, that's not my problem. And no. there's companies probably that you'd like to, oh, man, can I please write yeah, for you? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I have a friend that does all the ad copy for Astroglide, and that seems oh, wow. like a fun job. Although she says that they're, they're like, pretty – it's not funny. They want to be, like, very sex positive is, yeah. like, their spin, which is great, and I understand it. But uh, I guess they're, like, not great about taking jokes or making them. Yeah, I guess that can be uh... – the gray area. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so to speak. Do you go out and pitch your own stuff? Are you? you uh, I mean, you work on a show that's been on Adult Swim for ten years. Do you have an appetite to make your own show for the network or for a different network? Well, my manager would like me to. I, I think I am best utilized. As a staff writer, do you have time to do that? See, that's that's the thing is I don't really have the time, and also I'm I'm still really working on being good with story, right? Like I'm a very strong joke writer, I'm a very strong punch up person, very strong dialogue writer, um, but I just am not confident yet that I really have a grasp on sort of narrative skills, and so I'd like to be a little bit stronger there before I start trying to sell something. But th- does what you sell have to be a narrative? No, but I, I think that that's where my interests lie, maybe. Like, I think eventually, like, I would love to make something like Baskets, the Zach Galifianakis show. Yeah. Something uh, with a slow tenor, but, like, very funny and a little bit absurdist. That would qualify as that that show. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was really well done. Yeah, the great uh, John Kreisel. Yeah, and Louis Anderson is amazing. Mm-hmm. So what TV shows do you like? You like Baskets? I like Baskets. Uh, I've been watching Dairy Girls a lot, which is a BBC show. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was so so fucking good. Um, and then actually, I'm I'm trying to watch more movies right now because I feel like I'm so well versed in television. And then when I come here, people will pitch sketches about movies that I've never seen. So I'm I'm trying to like round out that education. Do you feel pressure to educate yourself on different cultural yeah. things? Yeah, definitely. Working it's, here, especially right before I come here, for yeah. sure. Like, before the season starts, you've got to get yourself up to speed on everything. Yeah, I'll just, well, because there are some big properties that are, are really well covered in the room, but I don't really watch, right? Like, I don't really watch any of the Marvel movies or any of the um, DC stuff. So, I've been trying to fill in the gaps there. So, you'll watch those and have a perspective on it, unlike many of the other people in the room. Yeah, or even just so I understand what pe- – because if somebody pitches a sketch and I haven't seen the property it exists inside of. Do you smile and nod or what do you Yeah, doing? or I'll just be like, I don't I don't know what this is, you know. Have you been to uh, Adult Swim in Atlanta? No, I haven't, but um, I do the Laughing Skull sometimes. And oh. My mom lives in Savannah, so I'm there all the time for comedy. And there's it's a great – because of SCAD, it's like a very liberal comedy scene, and it's the best. Atlanta's good, too, but there are way, way more comedians, so it's harder to get stage time. Oh, is that right? I would think with uh, your your credits, you'd be able to pop up anywhere. Yeah, I mean, not so much. That's well, I that's true, but it's only really been true this year. Do you know? This is like the first year that I am having a very easy time getting booked. Whereas previously, it would be a lot of like red tape, sending links and stuff. You don't get nervous anymore doing stand up. Oh no, I definitely. I've just started taking beta blockers beforehand. And oh really? What do those do? <laughs> uh, it's so it like. St- dampens the physical reaction you have to anxiety. Uh-huh. So I, I get really sweaty and I'll throw up sometimes. So, wow. Yeah, I have like a 
like an, like a shame problem uh, or like I'll feel it on stage. So this is like sort of takes that away so that I can like focus on having fun. What do you mean? You'll 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 feel it on stage. You'll feel yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'll be so like deeply. I will feel it in my body just like the embarrassment of being looked at and being on stage and like even the function. And I thought it would go away after six years, but it hasn't. Um, just sort of the function of being on stage is saying like, oh, I think I have something to say to you people, and that is very embarrassing to me. You hear yourself saying it. Yeah, 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 and it's um. I, I do material that, like, when it doesn't go well, it feels very painful. It feels like I'm being misunderstood because I do such personal stuff. So when somebody laughs at it or gets it, it feels really good because it's like, oh, I'm, I'm not alone. And then when people don't like it, it's like maybe I am alone. You know what I mean? Is there value in bombing? Totally. Uh, just so that you get a little bit numb to it. Uh-huh. And also it's, there's, it's unavoidable. There's... And, and the beta blockers do what? They make it so I am less afraid. Like, I just did um, stand-up NBC, which is a, a big competition for stand-ups for uh, NBC The Network. And I was so nervous beforehand that, like, I almost couldn't go on stage. And, like, you could you could hear my voice trembling oh. because it, you know? Yeah. And it, it was just like... I, then I, you're embarrassed. Yes. I'm embarrassed and I'm, I'm nervous. And also I want to be well-received. And it's like a it's like a hurricane of all of those things like physically affecting me. Oh, it makes me nervous thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been one of the things that like has has been sort of a job of mine inside of stand-up is like trying to become comfortable in my own body, which is like why I'm not very performative on stage, right? Because I don't – I don't know. I just like feel so alien in my skin that even being on stage is sort of an issue. So I think the beta blockers help me – um, just getting to a space where it's a little bit easier to have fun. Do you remember an instance where you nailed it? Where you just had such a great performance? Yeah, I mean... um, in One in particular? Oh, I don't know one in particular. Uh, well, I think that's the nature of the job, though, where you remember your bombs really well and you don't remember your successes. But I remember, like, when I first moved to Los Angeles and I... I I had spent like a year doing stand-up and I didn't really, really know people. And so I was in, a sh- I was doing one of my first shows and a lot of my peers that I really respected there. And I remember like getting big laughs from my peer, like people who were stand-ups in the scene that I'd have been like rotating around me. And that felt really good because it was like, it was just, it was validating because it was people whose performance styles and joke writing I really respected and they found something worthwhile in my set. Well, it sounds tremendously stressful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think life is tremendously stressful anyway. So, right? if you could talk to somebody who, like you, who was, you know, driving across the country right now to do what you do, what what would you say to them? If you're not having fun doing it, stop doing it. Like it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be painful all of the time. Some of the time, it's okay. Some of the, it will be painful most of the time, uh, but. Like once every six months, you should feel completely elated by the work that you're doing. And if that's not happening, reevaluate. <laughs> Have you had to do that? Reevaluate? Yeah. I mean, I'll go through phases where I'll take a little break from stand up, but I can never stay away for more than a week. And I think that's, I mean, that's what tells me that I should keep doing it. Because I don't want to be like a capital S, capital C stand up comic. Um, but, you know, I love. I love joke writing, and that's why I love Twitter. Is um, I love, you know, 
being able to make a sentence that works on a ton of different levels. And there are so few places where you can uh, engage in that except for stand-up. That's interesting. So, I mean, your Twitter audience is bigger than probably any stand-up audience you've ever had, right? At one time, yeah, definitely. Yeah, at one time. Definitely. What a thrill to hit tweet. Sure. And wait for it to roll in. Well, I I have my Twitter notifications turned off. Oh. So I don't see... Uh, I don't see how they're they're doing until later. Um, but I, I, it's weird for me because I still very much feel like nobody is reading the account, that it's like a private diary. And uh, that's just not true anymore. It's not true anymore. <laughs> that's not true anymore. And I, I forget that, like, like, people I know in real life will follow me online and I won't know until they say something to me about it. Like, I had this – I used to – you know, work coat check for a variety of events. And I ran into an old boss of mine and she was like, oh, I saw that tweet. And I was like, I had no idea. Like, it's it's so embarrassing to me that you are reading that. <laughs> and it's it's sort of like a hyper personal uh, direct line. And to my, I mean, it's a, it's a little bit thrown, my voice, but like it's, you know, an, an incredibly intimate view into my brain space. And I always forget that people are paying attention. And people think that they know you, and it's also not really you. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the other really difficult part is people will think that they really, really know me, and I will have to be like, well, you know, I'm kidding. A lot of it is is a joke. Uh-huh. But you can't really say that over Twitter. Yeah. Well, Twitter is not a space uh, for nuance <laughs> at all, <laughs> which is another, like, in the last few years, Twitter has become extremely toxic if you're paying attention politically at all. Um, and it oh, can has be... It? <laughs> he hasn't noticed. <laughs> yeah, it, it can be completely overwhelming. And it's also like I had a I had a tweet about abortion, like an abortion law that, um, you know, got 100,000 faves, whatever. And the um, like the amount of horrifying vitriol that like came in afterwards, like the replies, the DMs, people found me on all of my other social media accounts. It was horrifying. They actively sought you out. Actively sought me out to just say like, really, really violent and disturbing stuff. That's got to be scary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, to be like, quote unquote, doxxed. But also, I mean, as a as a white woman in America, I have inherently more privilege than a lot of people. So I'm not going to complain about like my tweet getting too big and then, you know, people DMing me rape threats or whatever. And your family can't like that. I don't tell you them. Don't tell I, them yeah, that I don't let them know on that part of it. Gosh. Yeah, it's a little... It's it's been a very odd space to navigate, especially because it's sort of still new. Do you know what I mean? Like online media in general. So it's been very interesting to see how people commodify it and also like, you know, use it to destroy <laughs> things. Have you taken things down because of that? Yeah, definitely. Definitely, definitely. The response you got was so hostile. Yeah. I just I had a, a tweet about the Chappelle uh, special. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I had it up for like maybe 25 minutes before I was like, you know what? I don't want to deal with this. Never the mind. New one? Never mind. Yeah, the brand new one. Yeah. What do you think? Um, you know, I love the Chappelle show and I, I think he's very talented. I just I don't know if he needed 60 million dollars to make like three specials or whatever. Like, I think that could have been redistributed to newer stand ups, newer pilots. I mean, I mean, I hate to get into the politics of his takes or whatever. I just uh, when he said that stuff about not believing the Michael Jackson accusers, and it's like I don't know, it's it's hard because it's like he was somebody I thought spoke truth to power, and now that he's in power, he has sort of flipped flipped sides. Um, 
So it's sort of hard to see your heroes age and be on the quote-unquote wrong side of an issue. And you're here in Hollywood at the on the front lines of a new way of communicating comedy. In what way? Well, I think in, on Twitter. Yeah, definitely. And also uh, with the advent of Instagram, it's been about combining those two platforms. Like some people are really good at one and not the other, but I think like very successful people have been able to find their voice on both in a way that works in conjunction with one another. Do you want people to follow you? Uh, on Twitter, yes. On Instagram, no. No? <laughs> yeah. Why? I am not – I have, like, no artistic eye is something I have learned from Instagram. Like, I, I couldn't tell you a good picture from a bad picture. So my Instagram is mostly just, like, funny signs <laughs> and jokes. <laughs> no Snapchat? No. I think Snapchat is dead. It's dead. Yeah, unfortunately. They have tried a revival, but I uh-huh. don't see it happening. How about TikTok? TikTok is the best. Okay. I am obsessed with TikTok. It's so funny. It's um it's like art for the parts of the country that are addicted to opioids. Do you know what I mean? Oh, like I do. it's like it's the wild west. It's crazy. I have a collection of uh, very special TikToks that I post to Instagram and it's um they're just they're wild. Lawless, completely lawless. Can uh, brands get into that? Yes, they they can. I just don't know how they would do it. So I I work with a company and we have a TikTok account. And we're sort of constantly talking about how we want to utilize it. But I just I just don't know how they could and, like, retain authenticity. Because by definition, being there doing that blows your yes. currency, sort of. Sort of, yeah. Well, it's also sort of like you, you can't be too full in on a trend because it seems bandwagony. Yeah. So you have to really have a reason to use that platform. And we haven't found, like, what, what that thing is going to look like yet. So now that you've found some success in this comedy world, what is your uh, extravagance? Do you have one? Well, I still don't make any money, so I think my next extravagance will be healthcare. Ellery Smith. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks I had for such on. a good time. Visit adultsome.com slash podcast for links to some of the things Ellery and I were just talking about. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Adultswimpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks to Dave Bonowitz and Christina Loringer, who've edited and produced these podcasts. Thanks also to Maggie Cannon for arranging everything, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.